bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need the legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, July 19, 2011. I will start this week's podcast with our usual update on tax reform and deficit reduction talks in Washington, D.C. Then, in the low-income housing tax credit segment, I'll discuss the provisions of a bill that would eliminate several tax expenditures. From there, I'll turn to a report that was released by the IRS related to post-issuance compliance of taxes and bonds. I will also share news from the IRS about relief for low-income housing tax credit properties in North Dakota. And finally, I'll discuss a memo released last week by the California Tax Credit Allocation Committee, or TCAC, regarding cost containment associated with developing affordable housing in California. In our Renewable Energy Tax Credit discussion, I'll discuss the provisions of legislation that's slated for introduction this week that would put the stalled PACE program back on track. Next, I will review Renewable Energy Tax Equity Finance Estimates, released last week by the U.S. Partnership for Renewable Energy Finance. And finally, I will share news about the formation of the first Congressional Biomass Caucus. Then, in our New Market Test Rate discussion, I have an important reminder of the impending deadlines for the ninth round of New Market Test Rate allocation applications. In our historic tax credit segment, I have a state historic tax credit update. So, if you're ready, let's get started. In general news, as listeners are well aware, no agreement has been reached yet regarding debt ceiling and deficit reduction talks. In fact, at last week's end, the two sides appear to be straying farther apart rather than closer together. Politico reported on Friday that President Barack Obama was continuing his push for a large deficit reduction deal. Meanwhile, on Capitol Hill, Republicans were heading in a different direction. They announced House and Senate votes for this week on a conservative plan to cut spending and put a cap on overall federal spending. The GOP bill stipulates that the debt ceiling can be raised only when a balanced budget amendment clears both chambers of Congress. This seemingly widening divide between negotiators brings us to this week's quote of the week. In a statement about the impasse between the two sides of the White House talks, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell indicated that partisan differences had stymied agreement. As a result, he said, and I quote, So now the debate will move from a room in the White House to the House and Senate floors. Despite this statement, Politico reported that there were signs that a larger compromise could still be salvaged in the White House negotiations. Of note, Speaker John Boehner and Majority Leader Eric Cantor were reported to have met with Treasury Secretary Tim Geithner and White House Chief of Staff Bill Daley on Friday. Also, Speaker Boehner reportedly sat down with House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi. Now, in other deficit reduction news, Senator Tom Coburn, formerly of the Gang of Six in the Senate, 
released his Back to Black plan on Monday. His plan would reduce the deficit by $9 trillion over the next 10 years. That is more than twice the $4 trillion mark the president is targeting. And, unfortunately for listeners to this podcast, $1 trillion of the $9 trillion comes from eliminating certain tax expenditures, including, yes, hold on, prepare for the worst, Senator Coburn's plan would eliminate the low-income housing tax credit, the new market tax credit, the historic tax credit, and, yes, you guessed it, renewable energy tax credits and deductions. Senator Coburn's analysis of the various tax credits contain numerous errors. These errors will be more fully outlined in the days and weeks ahead. One example is his criticism of the federal loan housing tax credit, where he draws upon inaccurate criticisms of state loan housing tax credits. He also estimates the repeal of the loan housing tax credit as saving $57 billion over 10 years, and those of you that follow my blog know that that's more than twice the real potential savings. Now, no one expects this bill to ever become law, but it is a call to action. Senator Coburn is echoing earlier comments by Senator Rand Paul. I also note that the Gang of Six in the Senate will be briefing about 50 senators on their plan sometime today. This is an effort by the group to be relevant in the deficit reduction talks. So stay tuned to my tweets and breaking news from the Vergratton Company for updates as the situation continues to evolve back in Washington, D.C. Now turning to the IRS. Last week, the IRS issued guidance for examiners and managers on the codified economic substance doctrine and related penalties. As listeners may recall, the Health Care and Education Reconciliation Act codified the economic substance test. It was a large revenue raiser. The IRS issued guidance about the test last year in Notice 2010-62, the first and only such guidance since Congress codified the economic substance doctrine. That is, until now. On Friday, July 15th, the IRS published a directive to instruct examiners and their managers how to determine when it is appropriate to seek the approval of the Director of Field Operations in order That's right, in order to raise the economic substance doctrine. Once an examiner determines that raising the doctrine may be appropriate, the directive sets forth a series of inquiries the examiner must develop and analyze in order to seek approval for the ultimate application of the doctrine. The directive has four steps. First, an examiner should evaluate whether the circumstances in the case are those under which application of the economic substance doctrine to a transaction is likely not appropriate. Think of this as the likely not appropriate test. Second, an examiner should evaluate whether the circumstances in the case are those under which application of the doctrine to the transaction may be appropriate. Think of this as the may be appropriate test. Third, if an examiner determines that the application of the doctrine may be appropriate, The guidance provides a series of inquiries an examiner must make before seeking approval to apply the doctrine. So there's a series of these additional inquiries as the third step. And then fourth, if an examiner and his or her manager 
as well as their territory manager, determine that application of the economic substance doctrine is merited, guidance is provided on how to actually request internal IRS approval. Now, of most interest to listeners, is language included under the first step of the directive. That's the doctrine likely not appropriate directive. In this section, the IRS sets out facts and circumstances that it says tend to show that application of the economic substance doctrine to a transaction is likely not, not appropriate. One of the circumstances listed for which the IRS says application of the economic substance doctrine is likely not appropriate is for a transaction where, and I quote, the transaction generates targeted tax incentives which are in form and substance consistent with congressional intent in providing the incentives. Now, while there's no mention of tax credits per se, this targeted tax incentives language is helpful, very helpful language for the tax credit community. Furthermore, since Treasury has said they will not release an angel's list of transactions for which the economic substance doctrine would not apply, this directive is very welcome news for the tax credit community. In low-income housing tax credit news, as negotiations continued on reducing the deficit last week, Congressman John Tierney urged the White House and congressional leaders to include the elimination of certain tax expenditures as part of any final debt deal. Congressman Tierney introduced legislation H.R. 2495, the Tax Equity and Middle Class Fairness Act of 2011, which would terminate nearly 30 tax expenditures. Congressman Tierney estimates that the bill would save more than $60 billion in the first year and nearly $500 billion over the next five years. One of the expenditures that are proposed for elimination caught my eye. This one was the $25,000 exemption from passive loss rules for rental real estate activities under Code Section 469. This repeal would eliminate the ability of most individual taxpayers to use up to $8,750 in low-income housing tax credits a year. Now, since individual investors are an extremely small part of the investor market, such a repeal would have limited impact on the tax equity markets. However, it is a potential repeal that would have some impact on light tech investing. Now, I note that the bill would not, I repeat, not repeal the real estate professional exception. That's the rule the general rule that says if you're a real estate professional, rental real estate is not per se a passive activity. The rental real estate professional exception is a significant rule for a number of real estate developers. So this rule is not addressed in these 30 tax expenditures. It's only the $25,000 allowance. Now, in addition to eliminating dozens of tax expenditures, Congressman Tierney's bill would also require the Government Accountability Office, or GAO, to evaluate the effectiveness of all remaining tax expenditures. The GAO would then be required to report to Congress with recommendations for the elimination of provisions that are poorly targeted or serve no public purpose. A copy of the Congressman's bill can be found online at www.novaco.com. Simply click on the Hot Topics button. Now, in taxes and bond financing news, last week, the IRS Tax Exempt and Government Entities Division published a final report on on its compliance check questionnaire projects. 
the projects principally evaluated whether 501c3 organizations and governmental bond issuers generally have a sufficient level of knowledge of the post-issuance tax compliance requirements applicable to their tax-exempt obligations. In addition, the questioners asked governmental issuers and Section 501c3 organizations about their compliance training programs for individuals responsible for monitoring post-issuance compliance of taxes and bond financings. In a summary of the conclusions, the IRS reports that nearly all, 97%, of the 501c3 organizations surveyed adequately maintain the necessary bond records to ensure post-issuance compliance. To learn more about the results of the projects, go to www.irs.gov and search for Questionnaire. In other IRS guidance news, last week the Internal Revenue Service issued Notice 2011-60, and it grants certain low-income and tax properties relief from Section 42 requirements in the wake of the devastation caused by flooding in North Dakota beginning on February 14, 2011. The IRS said it will temporarily suspend income limitation and non-transit requirements for local housing tax credit properties that have received approval from the North Dakota Housing Finance Agency to rent vacant units to individuals displaced by the natural disasters. Other rules and requirements of Section 42 still continue to apply during the temporary housing period. A copy of Notice 2011-60 can be found online at www.taxcredithousing.com. And we close with a look at the state of California. On July 11th, the California Tax Allocation Committee sent a memo to interested parties regarding a low-income housing tax credit development issue in the state. Specifically, the agency said they would hold forums throughout the state to discuss the issue of cost containment. That's cost containment associated with developing affordable housing. Specifically, TCAC says that some projects that have received low-income housing tax credits have significantly higher per-unit development costs than the statewide average or the average in the areas where the projects reside. The memo says these outlier projects have drawn significant public attention and have prompted TCAC to study the reasons why they are so costly. The study may lead TCAC to propose program changes to limit development costs within tax credit projects. The memo says that in April, TCAC convened a meeting with several stakeholders who had expressed interest in the issue. This meeting included sister agencies, namely the Department of Housing and Community Development, the California Housing Finance Agency, and the California Debt Limit Allocation Committee. This meeting was an initial scoping session to help define the problem. TCAC has continued to meet with its sister agencies over the last two months to further develop an action plan for tackling the cost containment issue. The memo reported that those meetings and internal discussions have led to the development of a problem-slash-goal statement, which says, and I quote, Occasionally, TCAC and other funding sources make awards to extremely costly projects. Continuing the quote, TCAC awarded projects generally may be more costly than necessary, fostering the public perception that affordable housing is too expensive. Effective in 2012, TCAC reservations would go only to cost-reasonable projects and outlier cost projects would no longer be awarded by TCAC or other funders. TCAC is currently in the process of gathering and compiling data 
to identify cost factors, trends, and unique issues associated with the outlier projects as compared to less costly projects. Close quote. To gather additional input from local housing tax credit stakeholders, TCAC will hold three public forums. July 20th in Sacramento, July 26th in Oakland, and July 28th in Los Angeles. Instructions on signing up to attend one of the forums are available in the memo, which you can find on the TCAC website. In Renewable Energy Tax Credit news, the Vote Solar Initiative announced last week that the PACE Assessment Protection Act of 2011 will be introduced by Congresspersons Nan Hayworth, Dan Lundgren, and Mike Thompson. The bill essentially reinstates the PACE program, and PACE is an acronym for Property Assessed Clean Energy. This legislation directs Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, as well as federal banking regulators, to allow PACE assessments that satisfy the underwriting criteria as well as the consumer protections that are specified in the bill. Supporters of the measure say it will spur local job creation and economic development with no federal government spending by allowing state and local governments to offer voluntary PACE programs, promoting clean energy generation and energy or water conservation. PACE Now, an advocacy and educational non-governmental organization for PACE Finance, estimates that if 1%, only 1% of U.S. homes participated in PACE, those projects funded by PACE would generate 226,000 jobs, $42 billion in economic output, and $4.2 billion in combined federal, state, and local tax revenue. Now, when the PACE Assessment Protection Act of 2011 is introduced in Congress, a copy will be posted online at www.energytaxcredits.com. Now, let's turn to the Renewable Energy Tax Credit Equity Markets. MarketWatch reported last week that renewable energy projects in the U.S. drew $7.2 billion in tax equity and treasury grant financing in 2010. These figures are from the U.S. Partnership for Renewable Energy Finance. The financing level in 2010 was more than double the $3.2 billion in 2009. For 2011, $3.9 billion in tax equity and treasury grant financing have been reported so far. Now, looking forward towards 2012, the group does estimate that the total financing level will fall to about $3.6 billion because of the expiration of the Section 1603 Cash Grant Exchange Program. Now, we close this section with information about the formation of the Congressional Biomass Caucus. On July 14th, the Biomass Thermal Energy Council applauded the formation of the first Congressional Biomass Caucus. Led by Representatives Charlie Bass and Peter Welch, this coalition will seek to support the development of biomass and elevate the renewable resources profile in Congress. Supporters believe the caucus will become a venue for members of Congress to discover the role that biomass can play in meeting the nation's goals of job creation and energy independence. Last week, Representatives Bass and Welch began circulating a Dear Colleague letter, encouraging other members of Congress to join the caucus. The council encouraged biomass thermal advocates to reach out to their elected representatives in the House and encourage them to join the caucus. 
Now, members of Congress who are interested in learning more about the caucus are encouraged to contact Lucy McFadden in Congressman Bass's office or Mary Spragan in Congressman Welch's office. In new market tax credit news, a deadline reminder, one you probably don't need, but for the handful that do, Entities that wish to apply for new market tax allocations in the 2011 round are reminded that the deadline for submitting allocation applications is eight days from today. Online applications for the ninth round of new market tax credits are due by Wednesday, July 27th. Now note that applicants must meet additional remaining deadlines in order to be eligible for an allocation beyond the online filing. Specifically, an application is not complete and will not be considered for review until and unless the signature page and attachments for the electronic application have been uploaded electronically on or before 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time on July 29th, Friday. In addition, the deadline for any questions to be asked of the CDFI fund about the application is Monday, July 25th. If you have questions about the new market tax rate allocation application, it's not too late to call my partner, Owen Gray, at 415-356-8000. In historic tax credit news, Oklahoma became the latest state in a growing trend of lawmakers that are scrutinizing state tax credit programs for possible elimination, a trend we've been following for some time. A 10-person task force met on Friday to begin analyzing some of Oklahoma's state tax credit programs. The Task Force for the Study of State Tax Credits and Economic Incentives was authorized in the waning days of the state's 2011 legislative session and was signed into law by Governor Mary Fallon. Its members include State Treasurer Ken Miller, State Auditor and Inspector Gary Jones, and key lawmakers of both parties, in the state's House and Senate. At its inaugural meeting, the group discussed the state's historic tax credit and tax credits on assessments insurance companies pay to guarantee associations. Although previous studies of tax subsidies have not produced dramatic results, Task Force Co-Chairman Representative David Dank said he was, and I quote, 100% confident that the group's efforts would lead to passage of legislation next year to scale back some of the tax incentives currently on the books. Created in 2006, Oklahoma's Historic Building Rehabilitation Credit reduced state collection by $26.9 million over a four-year period, ending in 2010, according to Insurance Department and Tax Commission records. The state credit equals 20% of qualified rehabilitation costs. The state suspended the credit for two years as part of a 2010 budget balancing deal. But the benefits are still accruing to developers and will be payable again beginning next year. Bob Blackburn, director of the Oklahoma Historical Society, told the group that the credit is a perfect example of the kind of tax incentive the state should keep in place because it creates jobs and boosts economic development. News OK reports that the group's first meeting drew an overflow crowd and that forced the meeting to be moved to a larger room. Representative Danks said he expects the task force to hold three meetings per month through November and to study at least three separate tax credits during each meeting. 
the historic tax credit is the first of many that the task force plans to review by the end of the year. By year's end, the task force is expected to issue recommendations about which of the $5 billion in tax credits and incentives that it will review, which of these are effective and should be continued, and which ones are not effective and should be discontinued. Nova Gratton Company will follow these meetings and report on future developments related to this and other state historic tax credit programs in future podcasts. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. Please join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. This is Michael Novogratik, and I'll be back next Tuesday. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archive discussions are available online at www.novogratik.com slash podcast or by subscribing to the Novogratik Report on tax credits in iTunes. Novogratik and Company, LLP, is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with 13 offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novago.com.